said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three things that Jesus the world and he set the pace all right grab your bibles we're going to be uh we're going to be all over the place today all right this is going to be a topical sermon on the topic of what is a disciple and we're going to be all over the place but we're going to start in acts chapter 11 verse 26 so put your finger there. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for the day. What a beautiful fall day. Actually, it's not even fall yet. It's a beautiful summer day. It looks like fall, but we're appreciative of it. I thank you for the gathering of your church and for your gospel. And I pray that uh, as we gather that we would uh, both be the community that you called us to be, but we would also be a community that, that, that uh, greatly pursues uh, your gospel, that it would both form us and transform us. Today we talk about uh, this important topic of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I pray very simply that you would give us all ears to hear what you would say through, to us by your spirit, through your word, and that we would have hearts to receive. And I pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So folks, what, is it, what does it mean to be a disciple? We're in the midst of a, a series called Disciple, and this is our second week in that series. And over the next series of weeks, I hope to answer that simple question. What does it mean to be a disciple? I introduced the topic last week as we looked at the Great Commission, that passage of Scripture where Jesus tells us that he, has, that he has authority and he commands us to go in his authority and to make disciples of all nations. Next week, as we come together, we're going to look at this, uh, what it means to become a disciple. We're going to walk through the life of Peter from the gospel of Mark and the end of John and see just uh, the process of how Peter himself became a disciple and how we might mirror that in our lives as well. The fourth week, we're going to look at the discipline of being a disciple. I'm going to tell you today that uh, disciple is not a, a role that we play. It's actually a, an identity. It's who we are. But even inside of that, there are things that we should do and that God tells us that we're supposed to do as we carry out uh, being a disciple. And lastly, we learn that discipleship comes with a cost. And we'll look at that from Luke 9. Today, uh, as we set out to look at this idea of disciple, I want to I hope to ask and answer uh, a couple questions, primarily the question of what is a disciple? You know, it would be an understatement for me to say that there's a lot of confusion in regards to this topic. I mean, what is a disciple? What really is it? Um, what is the process of, of discipleship? Everybody has their own ideas. Discipleship has really become this catch all term that means different things to different people. Some associate it with uh, the, the process that you uh, you come into the faith via uh, an evangelistic method. And some would say it's the process of maturing as a Christian. And of course, there's a whole variety of, of things that people think about discipleship in between those. And so it leaves those of us on the sidelines uh, just you know, wonder, it's like, well, which one is it? And I would tell you, I'm not going to answer that question directly, but truthfully, I think it's both, it's both and. It's, it's all of that. I want to focus on three things this morning. Firstly, I'm going to answer the question, what is a disciple? We'll do that. And then I want to answer the question, what's the goal of discipleship? And then thirdly, I want to explore a few thoughts in regards to uh, where have we gone wrong with our understanding? In other words, there's some distortions culturally in the church world in regards to what discipleship is. And I hope to at least present a few of those to you. Um, to provide some clarity on this issue. We'll start with the question of what is a disciple? Uh, the word disciple occurs in the Bible 269 times in the New Testament. Um, 
the interesting thing is, we, for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, you call yourself a Christian. The word Christian only appears in the Bible three times, three whole times. Among the gospel writers, Luke in particular uses these terms, Christian and disciple, interchangeably. For Luke to be a Christian is a disciple. Here's what he says in Luke in, uh, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. He says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. When we look at the number of times the word disciple is used uh, compared to the number of times that Christian is used, we should realize that this idea of being a disciple is very important to this category of being a little Christ, a, a Christian. More than just a category, though, the term disciple really is meant to be an identity. An identity simply is who you are. Who you are. Now, some of us in here are students and some of you are uh, married folks and your spouses. Some of us have uh, all of us uh, primarily have vocations of various types. All of those are roles that you play. But the role that you don't take off after you choose to follow Jesus is is disciple. We are students and parents and siblings and spouses and employees of various sorts. We put those things on ourselves all day. And, and the truth about those is at some point they all end. But this idea of disciple comes first. Our roles are temporary, but our identity, especially our identity as a disciple, lasts forever. Jonathan Dawson, in uh, a very good book called Gospel Centered uh, Discipleship, um, says that there are primarily, not only, but primarily three characteristics or aspects of a disciple's identity. And the first thing that he says is a disciple is rational. And that's, you know, those, those are lofty words, but it simply means that a disciple is focused on learning. The Greek word for disciple is mathetes. Okay, I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, the range of meaning is that a person is a student, you're a pupil, you're following after a master as an apprentice. Okay, primarily as a Christian, you're following Jesus. You're looking at all that Jesus does and you're trying to do what he does, almost like your kid would do as a kid is growing up, trying to mimic those things that his parent does. And so we see this in the Gospels. We see this in Jesus' life. Firstly, Jesus appealed to the reason of his followers. Okay, He was teaching them things. He was instructing them through sermons, stories. He brought, he, he brought uh, learning through the, the everyday means of their life. He tried to, to give them object lessons through the lives that they were already living. Indeed, he labored, he labored to teach them the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew's gospel says this in chapter nine, verse thirty five. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So the first thing that we can we can see in a disciples identity is it's rational. It's, it's focused on learning. We should be learning from Jesus about this life that he wants us to live. The second thing that we see uh, a disciple uh, is in regards to his identity is it's relational. It's relational. Jesus didn't just view his disciples as mere students. He wasn't just trying to, to teach them. Actually, they became his family. He viewed them like they were uh, part of his family. Uh, the uh, Matthew's account, uh, Matthew's gospel has this uh, this story where Jesus is is talking to a bunch of disciples, as he always did. And um, his actual family came up to this crowd, his mother and his brothers, the, the, the scripture says. And one of the disciples made it clear to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. And so Jesus stops what he's saying. And he says, who are my who are my mother and my brothers? And he goes on to say, my mother and my brothers are those who do the will of of God. He's redefining what family actually means. It's not just immediate family. It's those who are in the household of faith. One of my favorite scriptures is John chapter one, verse 14, because it shows us the, the depth of love that God has for us, that he would come from eternity and, and, and condescend himself by incarnating uh, uh, in the flesh in, in Jesus. And so John 1, 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this shows us how humble God is. God humbles himself in Jesus to share everyday life with people like you, you and me. And that's way humble, I would tell you. Think about it. He chose 12 ordinary people 
And they came from various uh, vocational backgrounds, from fisherman to a tax collector. And he shared all of his life with them. He ate meals with them. He shared his private time with them. He, he talked to them at various parts of the day. He lived his days with them. He lived and ate in their homes. There was no part of his life that wasn't opened up to them. Can you imagine how intimate of a relationship with those uh, those 12 initial disciples Jesus had after spending upwards of, of all of three years with them? And so Jesus' disciples had actually become his family. And so thirdly, a disciple is missional. And we looked at this last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time on here. But Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is where we find the Great Commission. These great words that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended back up to heaven. In Matthew 28, he says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so this great commission tells us that Jesus has a mission for his disciples to complete. Okay, he has something for us to do. Firstly, he calls us to be disciples, but then as disciples, there's something that he wants us to do. And the neat thing about the Great Commission is, I don't know if you, it's like a Jesus sandwich. It starts with Jesus. All authority has been given to him and he delegates it to us. But it always, it also ends with Jesus. He says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'm literally with you uh, all the time everywhere. I'm going to, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you as you're going, baptizing, and as you're teaching. The disciples aren't sent not, they're they're sent not in their own strength. They're sent in Jesus' strength and in his power. And that's good news in that. Jesus' mission is a gospel mission. And it's, and it's good news for us in that we don't have to rely on ourselves to complete the thing that he's telling us to do. We get to rely on him and his strength and his power to do that very thing. And so as they go, they don't have to go in their own strength. They also go and they baptize, which is a, a very sign of the gospel. Uh, Romans 6 says that baptism is this picture of us dying with Christ and rising with him to life. Baptism is this beautiful sign and symbol, a sacrament of the church, but a sign of the gospel. As the believer, as the disciples go, they baptize. And in baptism, we identify with Christ's death and his resurrection. In baptism, a believer is immersed into really two overlapping communities. We're, we're immersed into the community of the Godhead. And verse 19 says they're baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're also baptized into the church. First Corinthians 12, 13 says by one spirit, we've been baptized into one body. Baptism makes us a part of of God's family, but also the family of the church. And lastly, Jesus commanded the disciples to teach all that he commanded. And the very things that, that he wanted them to teach was the good news about himself. And so being a disciple and making disciples is, is really radically centered around Jesus. It's about him from beginning to end. And if it's centered on Jesus, it's also centered on the gospel. It's focused on the gospel. And if you really think about this, a disciple is is only made through the gospel. We become disciples when we believe the good news about Jesus, that he came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, died in our place for our sin on that cross was raised to newness of life, to bring us to life. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ was died for our sin and was raised. And so this, I mean, the simplicity of this is, if you don't understand the gospel, you really can't understand and know Jesus. Here's a, here's a good definition of a disciple. A disciple, is, a disciple of Jesus is someone who's been formed by the gospel. A disciple is someone who's been formed by the gospel. You can't be a disciple if you have not believed and submitted to the good news about Jesus. More than that, a disciple is one who learns the gospel. In other words, we're, we're availing ourselves to Jesus teaching and we're trying to 
live our life according to that teaching. A disciple is someone who relates in the gospel. That means we submit to the family of God and to the church as as that family. And lastly, we communicate the gospel. We take the Great Commission uh, as a command to us that we're supposed to go with the gospel, that we're supposed to baptize as a sign of the gospel, and that we're supposed to teach the gospel. Those words, the message of the gospel, are the words that should come from our lips as believers and followers of Jesus to find those who don't know him and help them to understand who he is. All right, that's the first thing. What is a disciple? Secondly, we want to look at what the goal of discipleship is. And this may be a surprise to you. And this isn't the only, there's several goals of discipleship. I shouldn't say there's only one goal of discipleship. This is an important one. I think this is the primary one. This is the one for us that helps all the others come about. And that goal of discipleship is simply image. In other words, God, through Jesus and his gospel, is trying to make you look more like Jesus. Think about it this way. All of you in here, me too, we're all concerned about image. All of us concerned about image. Uh, uh, one of the first things that many of us got up this morning, you might have used the bathroom. And then, you know, if you're a normal human, you go and look in the mirror to see what you did, see what you got to deal with for today. Right. And you got and after you after you see what you got to deal with, you got to do some things. You got to do some things with what's presented to you. Um, and the truth is, all of us work hard to present a certain image of ourselves uh, as we go about our day. One of the one of the uh, really prevalent ways that we present an image of ourselves is in social media. OK, so your Facebook status presents an image of you. What you what you post on Twitter uh, presents an image of you. If you're a blogger, you know, what you put on your blog, what you post to another person's blog presents an image of you. And I think if we're honest, uh, all of us would admit that our real image, who we are behind what we post, even what the clothes that we put on is a little bit different than the image that we present. OK, we're trying to put our best foot forward and there's nothing wrong with that. But oftentimes the image that we're presenting is not quite the image of who we are on the inside. Our real image is nowhere near as attractive as we, as we want it to be. We always we all want to look beautiful. Uh, all right. So many men want to look beautiful. All okay, right. So we want to look beautiful or handsome. We want to be more successful. We want to be more creative. We want to be more virtuous, more popular, smarter than we actually are. We all have an image problem because the image we want to be something other than oftentimes who we are or what we present. And so we go to great lengths to change that image. And that that is therein is the problem for us. We put all of our efforts into getting the image that we want. And that could be various things for some of us. uh, We try to lose weight. For some of us, we work hard to climb uh, a professional ladder so we have a certain status. Other of us, we might we do whatever it takes, whether spending money or expending more time or spending more energy or sacrificing to get this image that's other than the image that might be the true image of who we are. I think that the the truth of all of this in, in regards to the images that we seek is most of the images that we seek to be a representative of who we are in all of our chasing, none of those images will ever satisfy. We look for something that's going to make us happy. And oftentimes we look for that in image, an image of success or beauty or that I'm doing I'm doing OK in the world. The truth about image is that Christianity is about image. And we find this in the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis 126. God stamps his image on us way back in Genesis. And this is what Genesis 126 says. Then God, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so. Moses here writing in Genesis 
affirms that we were created in God's image. We have this imprint of the divine creator on us. It's stamped on us. And what God means by this, this, this statement, let us make man in our image. It's not that we look like God because God is, is, is not substance. He's not man. He's not material. He's a spirit. So we don't look like God physically, but he gives us intellect and emotion, the ability to communicate, which are all attributes of, of God. He gives those to us. More than that, this, this idea of image means that God gives us self-worth and worth and value. So the, the reason why human beings have worth is not because of what we do or what we put on or how successful we are in life. It's because God has given us worth from the very beginning. He's given us an image that mirrors his image. It's almost like looking at a coin with a, with a face on it. OK, that coin is representative of of something. OK, in our currency, that coin is representative of uh, oftentimes the founders of our country. It's not the actual person the the you know, the the, the image on the coin is not the actual person, but it's representative of them. And in, in much the same way, God stamps us with his image and he says, be my representative. Look at these words. He says, and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God has put us on the earth to be his vice regents. He's put us in charge to have dominion over the earth and to steward all that he's put in the earth on his behalf. One of the reasons why. Uh, we protest against abortions because God is he stamped his image on every living human being from the womb to birth. We have his image. Now, of course, as we progress in the story of Genesis, only two chapters later, uh, our image is tainted. Adam and Eve do what God says not to do. They eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat the forbidden fruit and sin enters their hearts Such they know they've sinned, they cover up in shame and sin enters every the the, the lives of every person born of woman. And this is the effect of of the the distortion of image in Adam that's transferred to us. Uh, We automatically fight for the wrong image. We look for not the image of God in ourselves. We look for we, we we look for our image to be created in other things. No longer are we satisfied with who God has made us, but we try to add things on to our lives to give us a sense of happiness or success. And that's a tainted image. And what happens is uh, we are immediately uh, at, at contempt for God. And we're at disregard for other people. That's the effect of a a, a tainted image in our lives because of Adam's fall. Here's the good news. God restores our image. Second Corinthians 318 says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And so I think it's a fundamental truth that we become what we behold. Have you ever noticed how a little kid uh, in many ways uh, mimics, mirrors his little kid? Um, it, one of the things I love observing as you all come to, come to our worship gathering is, uh, is seeing the parent and then seeing the little kid. And it's almost like little mini me's just walking around. And it's, it's not just, a, you know, at first it's, it's oftentimes a physical uh, a physical resemblance. Just you just look, you know, kids look like you. Sometimes it looks like more than, you know, one parent more than the other. But oftentimes you see a little bit of both of you uh, in your child. But every once in a while, I mean, you'll see that the child walks like one of the parents. And then as they grow up, they start talking like one of the parents. They might eat like one of the parents. I think my, my son, Jonathan, I mean, he we eat pretty fast. And so Jonathan, I mean, he eats as much and eats about the same as, as I do. And and some of your, some of your kids pick up your 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 tone of speech uh, or your bad words or, you know, or your bad attitude. You know, th- they pick up all those things about us. And this is this idea 
of we become what we behold. Children become like parents. Uh, a prodigy becomes like his mentor. A student becomes like his teacher. I think God intends for that to happen like that. God promises a restored image as we behold Jesus. That's what he's saying here. As we look to Jesus, as we behold him, uh, the, the glory of God transfers from Jesus, who we see, to us. And that has to be a beautiful thing. I think the place where we see Jesus most clearly and most gloriously is in his gospel. The gospel reminds us that because of our sin, you know, we drift back and forth. We drift back and forth from looking at Jesus. But we also try to bask in our own conjured up image of ourselves. A disciple is a person who looks at Jesus so intently that he actually begins to reflect the beauty of who Jesus is. And if you're a man, you're probably saying, well, I don't want to be beautiful. I, you know, I want to look good. You know, I want to be handsome for the men in here. OK, beauty doesn't mean outward adornment because the, the scripture says Jesus had a normal face. He, he could almost blend through the crowd. In fact, in, in, on the, before he was crucified, his body was marked such that he didn't even look. I mean, he he was he was not attractive at all. The beauty here more is is in terms of a respect. OK, and outward adornment that would cause someone to uh, to respect you, uh, to, to want to be like you. And we're being called to that, to to respect Jesus and his work, to see his sacrifice on the cross as a noble thing that he did in our place for our sin and to 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 admire the beauty of what he did in that act. And so a disciple looks so intently at Jesus that he actually begins to reflect who Jesus is in our everyday life. The gospel gives us eyes to see Jesus as well as the power to look at him. And look what, again at this verse. This comes from the Lord who's the spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit doing this in our lives. As we behold Jesus, the Holy Spirit in us makes us more like him. We behold what we become. We become what we behold. Not only that, the gospel also offers us hope for final transformation. First Corinthians 15, 49 says this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust. So just as we've looked like Adam in our physical birth, Paul goes on to say to the church at Corinth, we shall also bear the image of a man of the man of heaven. There's a future glory for us. Just as Jesus rose from the dead and was glorified, almost like Moses, when he went on the mountain and stayed 40 days and he came back with this glow about him. I'm not saying we're going to glow like a transformer or something, but there's going to be a glory about us, much like Jesus was glorified after he was raised from the dead. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to point about point out about this, uh, this idea of of image is that image doesn't just happen by osmosis. There's a transformation in our life to behold Jesus and become like him comes through a struggle. OK, we have to, to do something to gain it. Any image that you try to put on actually requires work. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you see what you have to work with and you brush your teeth, wash your face, apply makeup, all those things that we oftentimes do to make ourselves presentable in the image that we would want those who are looking at us to receive. It, it, it requires a little bit of work. Sometimes it requires hard work for those who that are professional and that, that want to put on a professional image to have that image, that persona about yourself requires work. Even the image of being a student or um, a, uh, any any vocation in life, it requires a little bit of labor. It requires some work. I'm not saying here that we have to work for the grace of God to, to make us worthy of God's gospel. But scripture does tell us that our faith requires a fight. In other words, trans, God's work of transforming us to be more like Jesus is the Holy Spirit's work. But we have a part to play. And the part that we have to play it's partly a fight. This is what Paul said to his disciple, to Timothy. First Timothy one, uh, verse 18 and 19. He said, uh, wage a good warfare. This this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them 
you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. What, what Paul is saying here, he's like your spiritual life and progressing through it is almost like a it's a lot, it's a battle. And you've got to garb yourself. I mean, you've got to you've got to get ready. You've got to suit yourself up and get ready for the fight. He goes on and says this later in, in, in Timothy in chapter six, verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many of many witnesses. And so our spiritual transformation is firstly like a fight. OK, and you got to get you got to suit up for it and you got to get ready for it. And then he, he gives us a different picture. He says that fighting the good fight of faith is like being an athlete and training for the the the, the contest of your life. OK, you got to I mean, you got to suit up. You got to do some training and you got to be ready. And so here's the deal with uh, this idea of image and transformation for us not coming without a struggle is that we have to fight for image because our sin lies to us. The sin inside of you will lie to you, and Satan doesn't fight fair. I don't know if you've, if you've been in the, crowd, in, in the Lord for a little bit. You know that, that Satan does not fight fair, and any progress that you make in the gospel, you've got to fight for it. The truth is, once we start fighting, we can, I mean, we can never stop. Transformation doesn't happen by osmosis. The Holy Spirit is doing our work in you, but you have a part to play. Gospel transformation that leads to the image of God comes through pain, struggle, suffering, and staring your ugly sin right in the face. And what you do when you stare in that mirror and see your sin reflecting back at you is you is you counter it. Okay, you counter it by recognizing that you're in a battle. You counter it like an athlete does training for a fight, and you speak truth to it. You have to speak the gospel to yourself. We speak the truth to our sin to let us know that faith doesn't come without a fight. And the thing that you would speak to yourself, this truth that you would speak to yourself is that Jesus is more precious, that he's more satisfying, that he's more thrilling than any other image or any other any other idol that you would chase that will replace him. And this is the gospel that Jesus has defeated our sin, that he's defeated death, that he's defeated the evil in our lives through his perfect life, his death and his resurrection. And here's the good news. He's making all things new. He's making he's making all things new to include us. All right. So what is as a disciple is a disciple is someone who's being formed by the gospel is someone that learns from Jesus life. Uh, he's submitted to being in relationship with Jesus and the community of the church. And he also recognizes that his life is is supposed to be on mission with God um, to to be a messenger of the gospel. Secondly, the thing that the that that Jesus goal for us in discipleship is that we would image God, that we would image God by what we do on the earth, primarily through living out the gospel, applying it to our lives. Thirdly, what I want to do just quickly is talk about ways that we've gone wrong in our understanding of the gospel. Perhaps you've been in you've been a Christian for a while and uh, you either believe that you're a disciple or you're not. For whatever reason, I want to talk about uh, three things primarily that uh, I would call distortions of true discipleship, ways that we sort of get off the mark of of being a true disciple. And the first of these is simply um, what I call disciple versus convert. Some people are highly fixed on um, bringing people to faith, converting them to Christianity. Okay, that's what that means. Whereas being a disciple is something else. I think the dynamic of what we see in America is, is this. Over the last century, both the church and the parachurch ministries have focused on gathering converts versus making disciples. And there's a little bit of a difference. Um, perhaps uh, you've seen, you've heard of, you've read about, maybe you've even experienced um, uh, one of these grand crusades that, that, that aren't so prevalent now, but where you'd, you'd see just thousands of people storming to a stadium or to an arena, and you have some big figure coming, and they're uh, presenting a Bible message, and towards the end of that Bible message, they're going to uh, talk about ways that a person can come to faith in Jesus. That you can profess Jesus by uh, repenting of your sins, uh, you know, putting your faith in, in Jesus. 
And then they'll have what, what church folk would call an altar call. You have swarms of people coming to the front of, of the arena, of the stadium, and you know, raising their hands and say, I'll follow, I'll follow Jesus. Uh, a couple years ago, I was serving at another church uh, in North Carolina. And uh, you know, obviously, it was, uh, it was near Fort Bragg. And this very prevalent ministry was coming into town. They were doing a crusade of sorts. It was it was kind of a new newfangled crusade because uh, it, it had you know rap music and it was it was a pretty cool event. It was cool. They came to some of the nearby churches and asked us to provide workers that would help uh, that would be available um, to pray with, to speak with, to share the gospel with those that came that might. Um, respond to uh, a Bible message and uh, the altar call at the end. And we did that. And the report was that many people came to faith. Hundreds of people came to faith. This was uh, the year of the crusade. All right. So fast forward to a year later and this same organization emails all of us at uh, the, the local church and says, hey, we had such great success at our event on Fort Bragg. It was great to see hundreds of people uh, come to faith in Jesus. And they asked for our they asked for our help. Um, and that was cool. That they asked for our help. My consternation in the whole thing was that when you see when you see when you hear a report that many people have come to faith, the, the, the next thing that you want to see as a person in the church world is where where are these people? Really? I mean, all right. So if hundreds of people came to faith, then you expect to see hundreds of people coming in and, and blending themselves into the life of the church. But I knew I didn't see those people. And so my question was, were we were we interested in the statistic of making converts or is, is there something more that should have happened with those hundreds of people that actually made a decision, prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, signed my name on the dotted line? All those things. And of course, you don't have to receive what I'm saying. Um, this may even be a little bit of opinionated, but I think there's there has to be more than us simply praying a prayer to receive Jesus. If we're doing what the Bible says in regards to being a Christian and living our life as a follower of Jesus. And in many ways, this is uh, the crusade method is is not bad. I'm not saying being a convert to, to Christianity is bad. I'm saying the Bible calls us to more. The Bible calls us to actually follow, pursue, do what Jesus did as he walked on the earth as a disciple. And that's more than just being a convert. And so in this Really, it's, it's almost like a, a, a car salesmanship kind of atmosphere. I'm not trying to belittle a crusade. I'm just saying the Bible requires us to do more. Here's the effect of, of church history, of crusades on the current state of the church. We have a whole country full of people who at some point watching TV, going to an arena full of people, responding to a, uh, an altar call, who, who may even have genuinely said, uh, I trust in Jesus. I repent of my sin who have not then been taken the, the next step. And we have a whole bunch of people who have been converted to Christianity with no follow through. OK. And so discipleship is following Jesus. It's not simply conversion. Did I confuse you all with that? Got it. Here's the difference. A, co- a convert actually does believe things about Jesus. A disciple, however, is willing to be transformed by Jesus. One is cognitive and focused on the facts of doctrine, even if I believe them. The other, being a disciple, is personal and is willing to be shaped and changed by the grace of God. All right. I beat that up a little bit. The second is is very close to it. And I call this true conversion. You know, Martin Luther uh, says this. He says there's really three conversions. He says there's a conversion of the heart. There's a conversion of our mind. And there's conversion of our purse. OK, and I think all those happen progressively. Most of us don't just you can't snap your fingers uh, even after we come to faith and just everything sort of comes in line. And we know that we're supposed to do all these things. A disciple is one that learns. 
A disciple learns almost like your child learns from you how to live life by experiencing it, by looking at you and doing the things that you do. And and ways that we learn to follow Jesus are, are just by learning. What Martin Luther is getting at here is that the gospel converts our hearts, minds and our money, but it also converts us to something. And so when we're being converted to Jesus, we're being converted to him in our in a personal relationship but we're also being converted to the church, okay? And this is where the the argument of being a convert, being a disciple um, sort of plays out, okay? It's okay to be a convert, but the scripture scripture lends itself to us being not just converted to follow Jesus, but being being a follower of Jesus inside of the confines of the church. Being a convert to something and primarily that's to Jesus church and to his to his mission. Uh, the Christian subculture has convinced us that uh, our, our our special relationship to Jesus totally vertical is enough. I don't know if you all pay attention to worship worship albums nowadays, but most of the time you'll see a, a lonely worshiper. He's got his hands lifted and he's you know, it's me, myself and Jesus um, worshiping on the front cover as if uh as if our worship to Jesus is just about me and him. And I would argue, yes, your worship of Jesus is about you and him. But as a disciple, there is a communal aspect to it. And Jesus calls us not just to worship him by ourselves, but to worship him with the community of the church and to be on mission with that community. And I think that's what true conversion means. First Peter 4.10 says this, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Here's the criteria for discipleship. It's not just you and Jesus having a good personal relationship. Rather, I think what first Peter's get what Peter's getting at in his in his uh, epistle is that we're supposed to leverage the gifts that God is giving us, given us for the good of other people. That I used this verse this morning when we were having volunteer training. I said the picture of you in the church is using where God, what God has given you and using it to serve others in the community of the church as you steward that gift um, just in, in his for the building of God's community. So um, this idea of of me and and Jesus mentality has in many ways messed us up. It is your faith about you and Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. You should have personal time in the scriptures and in prayer and getting to know Jesus. But I'm convinced that we really can't become true disciples unless we're playing that out also in community. You can't perform the one another's of scripture without having a one another to play to, to do it on. Think about that. The third one is religious performance. And I'm going to try not to beat you up on this one. Um, I think most people tend toward two extremes. Either we tend toward legalism. That is, we have rules for ourselves, rules for ourselves in in terms of we measure our our worth by how well we perform. Or the opposite end of that is we want to we want we don't have we don't want to have any rules. The grace of God is is for me and God is going to forgive me if I sin. That would be uh a licentious way of living. I want to talk to you all about more about the legalistic perspective in, in this way. Um, a lot of times we keep rules and we're driven by our rules in terms of how we perform. And we call that discipleship. And this plays out in a number of ways. We say to ourselves, if I perform well, God will accept me. If you're spiritual, then you read the Bible. You might pray. Uh, you might fast, you might exercise a spiritual gift, speaking in tongues, you might serve and you call that discipleship. And it is. Um, others of you are oriented toward mission and you might want to renew the city or serve the poor or share the gospel with somebody and you call that discipleship. And it is. And then there's some of you that um, you do other things. Like you, you stay moral, uh, you avoid those things that you're supposed to avoid and you speak up for those things that are wrong in our culture, um, like like social justice kinds of issues. And you call that discipleship. 
I'm not saying any of those things are discipleship. I'm saying when we when we focus on our religious performance, those spiritual, those missional, or those cultural things that we do, and we and we call those those soul things discipleship, and that only is discipleship, then what our discipleship falls on is the the roller coaster of our life. Because if if I'm performing well, then I've been a good disciple. But on those days that I don't perform well, on those days that I don't feel like reading my Bible, those days that I don't feel like praying, those days that I don't feel like going and serving someone, those days that I don't feel like doing anything in any way that feels like I'm a Christian, then you're saying to yourself, I'm not a disciple on those days. It's not that you aren't, but you, you, you say that to yourself. And so our self-image rises and falls with our performance. And that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel says that God approves of you, not based upon your performance, whether it's something that you, I mean that you're supposed to do. And it's a good thing. God approves of you based upon Jesus perfect performance on your behalf. The truth of the gospel says you don't have to impress God because Jesus has already impressed him for you. So I'll conclude with this. God is calling all of us to assess where we are as disciples. Where are you in terms of your life as a disciple? The essence of discipleship is not in what you do. It's in who you are. Discipleship is not a role. It's not clothes that you put on to come to church. It's your identity. Okay. And the intent is you would wear it forever following, following after Jesus. And so have you embraced the identity of a disciple? Are you someone that's, that's firstly responding to the gospel? Are you trying to learn from Jesus and relate as a part of his community, as a follower of Jesus? Do you do you see yourself as being on mission with Jesus, as one who's been commissioned to communicate the good news about him to those that you come across? Are you really a disciple of Jesus or perhaps are you just a convert? And as you grab, just as you wrestle with yourself in regards to that question, are you a disciple um, perhaps that question, answering that question for yourself would bring you to a point of repentance. And repentance is simply uh, the gift of God to notice that you're going down a road and it's the wrong way. And you should turn and go to the opposite way. And when we repent in a biblical way, we're repenting from doing things our own way and repenting. We're returning to God. And so perhaps some of you need to repent simply by becoming a disciple. And we become a disciple by believing the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for my sin and was raised. That's that little acronym I taught you all. Okay, Jesus Christ died for your sin and he was raised. And if you have faith in that and repent of your sins, the scripture says that you are a Christian. But more than that, you're a disciple. You're a follower of Jesus. Perhaps some of you need to become disciples today. Some of you perhaps might need to repent of individualism. And this would be. Uh, you, yourself, and you kind of Christianity. Of, of you enjoying your personal relationship with Jesus, which is not wrong, but the, Christ, the scriptures tell us that we aren't just disciples in and of ourselves. We are disciples in community. It takes a community to make a disciple. It takes a community to be a disciple. It takes a community to, be, uh, to make a disciple. True conversion is being converted not just to Jesus, but also to his church and to his mission. So repentance may uh, for you may be you stop stop doing your own thing and join a community of people, a, a community of faith. We have community groups here in our church that are committed to spiritual spiritual formation, to growing you as a disciple. So look those up. And lastly, some of you may need to repent of religious performance in the name of discipleship. You might be doing a whole bunch of good things, reading your Bible, praying, serving. All manner of good things, doing those things that you should not doing those things that you ought. But God doesn't want you to be on this roller coaster of on my good days. I'm a good disciple. And on my bad days, I'm not a disciple at all. As you profess faith in Jesus, he calls you a disciple. Even on your bad day, Jesus has performed the good for you so that you don't have to. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you call us disciples.
You not only have called us disciples as we trust in you and repent of our sins, you've given us a mission. And that mission is to go find people who don't know you and to share the message of your good news and to help them learn to follow you. All of us in this room today, we want to be disciples. Teach us what that means. Firstly, unfold for us the good news about your perfect life, death, and resurrection. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would turn a a stone heart into clay today and make it malleable that you might be able to form it into someone who truly believes in you. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the beauty of your truth and your word and that we would take hold of it. In regards to this idea of of being your disciples, God, we pray that we would be people who image you, that you that as we behold Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would continually change us such that we don't have to put on a uniform. To be for us to consider ourselves as happy or successful or to have a good day, but we'd be satisfied in simply imaging you on the earth. Lastly, Lord God, I pray that you would give us a heart of repentance toward those ways that uh, we may have missed the mark in this idea of discipleship. For those in this room who really have been uh, converted to, to Christ and have gone no further, Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage to, uh, to join a community of people who can help them to walk out their faith. For those of us who've uh, been on the religious end of, of being a disciple, because of the, we focus on the things that we do, would you help us? Would you help us to see that you've called us to an identity? Who we are is as a disciple. It's not about what we do. We thank you for our time together today. We thank you for your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.